Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Deadhead Cannabis Show. I'm Larry Mishkin of Mishkin Law in Chicago, Illinois. And uh, today's September 11th, and you know what that means. Today is Vicky's birthday. Happy birthday, Vicky. So yes, September 11th is in fact Mickey Hart's birthday. And while of course, September 11th is also remembered for another day, a much more somber day, uh, in all fairness to Mickey, he was born first. And uh, I think that we can uh, uh, show appreciation and admiration and celebrate his big day uh, as the Grateful Dead did countless times throughout their career. Uh, when I went back and started looking through some of the shows for this day, I was surprised at how many there were with a couple of Garcia band shows thrown in. So clearly September 11th, uh, a day on which uh, the Grateful Dead and or uh, various members uh, could be found performing somewhere. And on this particular day, uh, this clip was taken from uh, the Grateful Dead playing on September 11th, 1987 at the Cap Center in Landover, Maryland. And... Um, you know, the boys always like to have fun with that kind of thing. Of course, you had to be careful because unless you really knew for sure, you could never quite quite trust them. At my second show uh, ever in 1982 at uh, Syracuse Carrier Dome, right before the encore of uh, a broke down palace, somebody from the stage announced that it was Bob Weir's anniversary. We'd had a number of celebrations on this tour, and tonight is Bob Weir's anniversary. And looking back, it was not actually October 16th, so it wasn't his birthday. Uh, but they tried to pawn it off as his anniversary, and everyone around us kept screaming out, Bob's not married, which he was not at the time. Uh, so naturally, there was a little bit of confusion among uh, those in attendance, um, and we didn't all have uh, uh, phones that we could go to with Google on them to uh, be able to track down that information instantaneously. So uh, if you're at a Grateful Dead show and somebody makes an announcement from the stage, take it with a grain of salt until you can go home and confirm it, or some deadhead who you actually trust uh, we'll, we'll confirm it for you, but today's Mickey's day. Um, you know, and the guys in the drums never get as much recognition as the boys up front unfair, uh, I would argue because they are the, the, the foundation on which the entire musical platform that the guys in front are creating is being built upon any good band, any good rock band throughout history has always had, uh, that drummer, whether it was Charlie Watts or John Bonham, uh, or Keith Moon, um, the, the drummer, such an integral part, uh, of any band and in, uh, Mickey Hart and Bill Kreutzmann, the Grateful Dead had, and we still have two of the best in the business. Uh, it's no surprise that Bill Kreutzmann is, is going strong with his Billy and the kids. It's no surprise that Mickey Hart was drumming strongly with dead and company right up through this final tour. And it doesn't appear as though either one of them is, is ready to call it a day. Uh, but our, our good friend, drummer Michael Stephen Hartman, known as Mickey Hart, uh, was born in New York on this date in 1943. He quickly became interested in percussion and science at an early age and continued to explore both fields. A fateful meeting with Grateful Dead drummer Bill Kreutzmann at a Count Basie Orchestra concert in San Francisco 
led to Hart joining the band. He first performed with the Grateful Dead on September 29, 1967 at the Strait Theater in San Francisco, where Kreutzmann invited him to sit in for the second set. We've, we've told that story before about how they had her go rushing back to Kreutzmann's apartment to get a second drum set uh, that they could set up there for him. Uh, and then Mickey says, after that night, I moved into a closet in Billy and Phil's apartment on Belvedere and became the sixth member of the Grateful Dead. Mickey's initial tenure with the band ended on February uh, in February 1971. We've talked about that as well. He was there for night one of the uh, historic six-night run at the Capitol Theater in Port Chester and then went uh, AWOL on the band for a while. Uh, many say it was because of the... Uh, actions of his father Lenny who had become the dead's manager and it turned out had been uh, embezzling some amount of funds from them and he ran off hence the song he's gone um but uh, uh he, he did take that time off and uh he he joined the, the the band for a final concert before uh they took their hiatus on October 20th 1974 he was welcomed back into the fold when the group returned to the road in 1976 and then he and Kreutzmann were behind the kids for the rest of the Grateful Dead's career. Uh, more recently, the two of them formed the uh, the drumline for Dead & Company uh, that included Bob Weir as well as O'Teal Burbridge, Jeff Kamenian, John Mayer. They also played with the other ones. They also played with the Dead. They also played with uh, whatever we're calling the group that played in 2015 at Soldier Field. Uh, but, but this was, this was Mickey's life to be practically born with drumsticks in his hands. Both of his parents were champion rudimental marching band style drummers. Uh, Mickey committed to percussion early on after experience in high school and the military air force marching bands and a brief stint working at his father's drum shop. He encountered Bill Kreutzmann one night at the matrix on September 30th, 67. He sat in with the dead and joined the band. His influence over the next year was to push the band into complex, multi-rhythmic explorations. A student of Ustad al Raka, Ravi Shankar's tabla player, he added various strains of non-Western music to the Dead's general atmosphere. Over the years, he has been involved in many musical and archival projects, most notably the band Global Drum Project and the American Folklife Center at the Library of Congress's Endangered Music Project. He is the author of several books, including Drumming at the Edge of Magic and Global Drums Project. He's put out a number of CDs on his own, uh, Infrared Roses and um, Planet Drum and all sorts of uh, percussion-based works that he's put together. Uh, he's, he's partnered up with, with percussionists from all over the world. And uh, we've talked about it, what he did in, in, with people from Africa, with the people from Egypt, uh, with people from everywhere. Uh, percussion apparently is an international language. And Mickey speaks it as well as anybody. One CD that he did put out that never really got, I thought, uh, a lot of attention, and maybe for the better, maybe not, depending on how you look at it, but it was a CD, and the name of it was Music to be Born By. And what he did was he had actually recorded uh, his, his son Taro uh, when Taro was still in utero, his heartbeat, and used it as a baseline for a whole percussion thing that he put together and the idea was if it was being played in the delivery room as the baby was being born uh, the baby would be coming into an environment uh, with a sound background that to which the baby was already familiar having been in utero itself and and, and having heard the mother's heartbeat uh, or its own heartbeat for for so long um 
Some people liked it. Some people didn't count my wife in the group that didn't. Uh, since I wasn't the one going through labor pains, I can't comment on that one way or the other, but I had no problem removing it when being asked. And uh, sorry, Mickey, I guess it's just not for everybody, but it was a very creative idea. And, uh, you know, exactly the thing you would expect from Mickey Hart, you know, taking uh, one of the most special sacred moments of life and finding a way uh to make it a piece of percussion uh, art and uh, really just incredible. And here's something else that Mickey did. He didn't get a lot of credit uh, for being very much other than a great drummer, which I don't think he ever really wanted. Uh, but Mickey was involved in some of the songwriting for the Grateful Dead. And most notably, Ricky Mickey is credited uh, with Robert Hunter as the co-writers of the Grateful Dead song, Fire on the Mountain, uh, which became popular in the late 1970s and then kind of became co-joined at the hip, uh, never to be separated from Scarlet Begonias. And uh, even though Mickey was involved in writing it and Hunter the Words, you know, Jerry sang the song and Mickey was always back there behind the drums drumming. But uh, we've all heard stories, we've all heard rumors, and some of us have actually been blessed enough to hear it, that every now and then when the moment's right, Mickey will uh, get up and actually do his own, what they, what they call a rap version of Fire on the Mountain with the lyrics. And uh, um, I saw him do it once at uh, um, Alpine Valley, I want to say, when they were touring with the other ones, maybe. Um, but uh, uh, we have a great version of it that uh, he recorded with Jerry Garcia uh, that I was able to find on the internet. So let's go and listen to Mickey Rap. That's great stuff. Okay. That's just great stuff. That's a guy um, who, who doesn't make his living using his vocal skills. And yet, you know, once again, taking basic music and breaking it down into a you know, much more rhythmic type of uh, percussionistic format, not unlike what rap is as well. And uh, Mickey's just a natural at it. And, and, and that's just great to hear that kind of stuff. And, you know, quite frankly, as much as we all loved hearing Jerry sing it and the boys really jam it out, throwing one of those in every now and then uh, would have been a lot of fun. Um, and, you know, certainly I can't speak for every dad head out there, but I know folks who would love to hear Mickey rap like that. And he did most recently, actually, uh, at the Dead and Company show at uh, Folsom Field in Boulder, Colorado earlier this summer. I don't remember which one of the nights it was, but uh, uh, he, he put out uh, his rap version of this again, much to the delight of the deadheads who had made their way out to um, uh, Folsom Field. Um, 
Robert Hunter wrote the words to Fire on the Mountain, we said. In his book of lyrics, Box of Rain, he described the circumstances surrounding the writing of the song, which sounds strikingly similar to the current situation in parts of California and surrounding states. Hunter wrote that this song was written at Mickey Hart's Ranch in Novato, California, in heated inspiration as the surrounding hills blazed and the fire approached the recording studio where we were working. The official Grateful Web dead site, dead.net, further describes the early stages of Fire on the Mountain, explaining Hart credited with the music for the song, recorded a proto-rap version of the song for an unreleased album entitled Area Code 415, recorded in 1972 and 73. It was also included on a Mickey Hart album entitled Fire on the Mountain, recorded in 73-74. It appeared as an instrumental entitled Happiness is Drumming on Hart's 1976 studio album, Diga, and it finally began showing up in the Grateful Dead repertoire, sung by Jerry Garcia in 1977, undergoing a number of variants of the lyrics until it settled into the form that was eventually recorded and released on Shakedown Street in November 1978. And, you know, I love that because that encapsulates what we always talk about with Grateful Dead songs, right? This was Mickey's song that he was just kind of doing it his way and the way he liked doing it. And, you know, over time, the Dead kind of picked up on it and Jerry picked up on it and he added his two cents and everybody else did and, uh, you know, made it out on Shakedown Street. And we have this wonderful tune uh, that we all loved as much as any that they played and play it they did 254 times. Uh, first played on March 18, 77 at Winterland and last played on July 2nd, 95 at uh, uh, Deer Creek. So always, always a crowd favorite, uh, almost always paired with Scarlet Begonias, though not always. And uh, even when it wasn't, it was just such a pleasure. And uh, I never heard anybody go to a Grateful Dead show and complain that they played Fire on the Mountain. And uh, again, great to hear Mickey do that. One other thing that uh, uh, Mickey did, another song that he gets some uh, credit for uh, in the Grateful Dead repertoire is one of those strange songs that like you'd see on the albums that some bands of that era did, you know, with like songs with subtitles and then subtitles under the subtitles and stuff like that. And on the Blues for Allah album, there is a little musical suite called Blues for Allah. Uh, and it, it's at least on the album identified as being broken down into two parts. The first part is Stronger Than Dirt. Second part is Milk and the Turkey. Mickey, along with Billy and Phil, gets musical songwriting credit for Stronger Than Dirt. So if you've listened to the album before, it's, you know, a little instrumental thing in there that's very nice and fun to listen to. But a lot of that uh, really kind of deep, deep blues for Alice stuff from the album uh, was never really played very much by the Grateful Dead in concert, at least uh, not during the period of time that I was going to their concerts. Um, and uh, although uh, Phil and Friends and some of the others have picked up on that and have have have, have, re- have incorporated different parts of blues for Allah and, and some of the other uh in the desert songs that, that, that come off of that album. Um, you just don't hear them a lot. So I was pleasantly surprised to find uh, very quickly that uh, an example of Stronger Than Dirt played by the Grateful Dead was not impossible to find, uh, not played very often as we'll talk about in a minute. Uh, but let's listen to Stronger Than Dirt.
that is uh, Stronger Than Dirt. It's from uh, the Grateful Dead show June 17th, 1975 at the Winterland Arena in uh, San Francisco. And again, as I said, it was credited, the uh, the musical uh, uh, composition is credited to Mickey, Bill, and Phil. It's from the Blues for All album released in 1975. It is the first part of the Blues for All suite, followed by Milk and the Turkey. And here's why most of us don't have a lot of familiarity with it, other than, you know, dig uh, deep dives into uh, Blues for All is because the Grateful Dead played it live a total of five times. The first time was, in fact, on Mickey Hart's birthday, September 11th, 1974. And I was all set to put that version of it. But when I was listening to it, it didn't sound quite right to me. And reading the uh, the comments under the, uh, the the show where it was found on archive.org confirmed that there was a controversy as to whether the song that was labeled as Stronger Than Dirt was, in fact, that song, or rather the long musical outro from Eyes of the World, uh, which was the song played right before it in the concert. Um, now, knowing that uh, uh, back at that time, 73, 74, 75, when Wake of the Flood had was also had been a relatively new album still, and, and um, some of these songs, like Eyes of the World, were just you know really getting started. They they would often play the full outro of the song, a, a long kind of musical interlude. And if you go back and listen to Wake of the Flood, you can hear it in, in you know some early versions of Eyes of the World from '73 and '74, and even part of '75. Uh, you, you can still hear it. Um, this was, in fact, September of 74, but so not out of the place, but it, it sounded to me like it was the outro from Eyes of the World, and there was a lot of controversy, a lot of people uh, writing notes saying they, too, believed the song was mislabeled and that it was, in fact, uh, the Eyes of the World outro. So we didn't use that version of it, but that gets counted in the five, so if you can't take that out, then there's only four. Um, the last time they played it was on July 26, 1976, at the Orpheum Theater in San Francisco. Uh, they played it three times in 1975, um, and uh, including this version from June 17, 1975. And there you go, right? In the Grateful Dead, nothing is too big, nothing is too small. Uh, just this little musical interlude that very, very rarely made it into an onstage performance. Uh, but for fans, again, of the discography of the Grateful Dead who have Blues for Ollie, you're probably very familiar with Stronger Than Dirt. And uh, it's a good song to smoke a joint during because there's no singing, so you don't have to worry about coughing when you're trying to sing the lyrics, um, or so they tell me. Uh, so, uh, yeah, so that's Stronger Than Dirt. Um, again, Mickey just having some fun and, and doing his thing, showing that uh, you know he can, he can scratch it out a little bit of music when he wants. And I do have a little bit of Mickey Hart still to go, but um, I saw this news just today and I grabbed it because I think that it's, it's well, it fits in very nicely with the show that's talking about a band that played for 30 years and has already been out of the scene for another 20 since then, or more, 25, I guess, going on 30 years. Um, just, uh, you know, their, their lead singer and guitar player, went as far as he could and then couldn't go any further. Well, there aren't a lot of bands that are still out there and still active today that can make a claim to have played as long as or longer than the Grateful Dead. And yes, obviously a band like Fish can now because of when they started. But, you know, if you talk about a band that more or less came on the scene at the same time as the Grateful Dead, so early to mid-60s, um, 
there are not a whole lot of bands left that fit that bill. And of course, one of them is the Rolling Stones, the greatest rock and roll band in the world. And I say that proudly because the Grateful Dead are not a true rock and roll band. They're a jam band in the more uh, better sense of the word. And, you know, when they don't play songs like Jumpin' Jack Flash and Street Fighting Man and um, Brown Sugar and all those great Rolling Stones rock and roll tunes that we all jammed out on for years and years and years. And the Stones, of course, started, I think I want to say their first album came out in 63 or 64. Uh, and you know Mick Jagger and Keith Richards um, are still going strong together. Uh, Ronnie Wood joined the band a few years later. Brian Jones, the original guitarist, of course, died. Um, Bill Wyman, the bass player, left the band a few years back, and they've had another bass player. Um, but you know, at the end of the day, it's Keith Richards still on lead guitar out there, you know, bringing out the music and, and Mick Jagger. So lo and behold, the Rolling Stones have confirmed. Their first new studio long playing album, LP Kids, that means a record album, in 18 years. 18 years since their last record. Um, and, you know, actually for a while there in the 80s and 90s, the Stones were rather prodigious in how much new music they were putting out and Bridges to Babylon and some of those albums. And I can't say I ever really liked those albums very much. I didn't dislike them. It just, for me, felt a little stretched and you know, after Start Me Up, I, I, I think I kind of drew the line or Tattoo You or whatever album that was. But uh, I'm going to go out and I'm going to check this album out because why the hell not? This is the Rolling Stones, for God's sakes. So, you know, they, they, they recently had a live stream on their official YouTube channel, a 30-minute segment um, hosted by Jimmy Fallon at London's Hackney Empire Theater. And I'm just going to say this about Jimmy Fallon. I think he's a very nice guy. I don't know Jimmy. Um but of all those guys who are on late night TV, he's probably my least favorite. He, his style seems very stilted. You know, he, he doesn't seem as natural and as comfortable with everything. But I'll be damned if he doesn't know like everybody in the industry and he gets the best freaking gigs around. So hats off to him. And, uh, you know, if they bring the Rolling Stones, reach out to Jimmy Fallon and say, we want you to come in and host this uh this program that we're doing, you know, you've made it big time. So Jimmy, God love you. doesn't matter what I think, you know, if Mick Jagger and Keith Richards like you, um, you know, you're in. So uh, they want him at, you know, the London's Hackney Empire Theater to announce the release of their first studio album comprised of new material in 18 years. Hackney Diamonds is going to drop on October 20th via Geffen Records. And as a preview of the set, the band shared their first single, Angry. Um, according, I don't have a clip of it and can't share it yet because it hasn't been officially released, but I'm sure clever people can go around and find it. According to the official press release, Hackney Diamonds will feature 12 new tracks recorded in various locations around the world, including Henson Recording Studios in Los Angeles, Metropolis Studios in London, Sanctuary Studios in Nassau, Bahamas, Electric Lady Studios in New York, and the hit factory Germano Studios also in New York. The list of locations speaks to the band universal, the band's universal draw and ability to transcend audiences internationally, a skill that dates back to their initial commercial success. The impending drop represents the Rolling Stones' first studio set of new material since 2005's A Bigger Bang, which coincidentally was released on September 6, 18 years ago. Since then, the band, which features Mick Jagger, Keith Richards, and Ronnie Wood, has continued to garner notoriety by selling out global tours, delivering chart-topping albums, including their last 2016 Grammy Award-winning Blue and Lonesome LP, 
which featured their takes on collection of favored blues tracks that helped forge their own sound and style. Hackney Diamonds marks the Rolling Stones' first collaboration with New York-born producer and musician Andrew Watt, who is producer of the year at the 2021 Grammy Awards and past work with stars such as Elton John, Iggy Pop, and contemporary artists such as Post Malone. So freaking hats off to the Rolling Stones, man. I mean, that's just great. Good for them. Um, and I hope they tour again, you know, and I would love to go see them. And, you know, I, I've, I've told the story. I saw them in 1981 in Philadelphia with my buddies, and we thought they just were so old. And, oh, my God, they sounded old. They looked old. This is, And they hadn't even gotten started, right? 81, they were just been playing for about 15, under 20 years. And, you know, since that time, they put another 40 years behind them. So it uh, shows you what a, butt of, what, what a bunch of stone wannabe hippies from the early 1980s knows. Uh, but nevertheless, um, God bless those guys, and uh, I hope they just keep cranking it out. And Keith Richards defies all the odds and all the logic that any of us ever had about what heavy-duty drug use could mean to long-term survival. So God bless him, and uh, um, uh, we'll see uh, where the where they can go from here. But uh, it just seems like wherever they go, it's always in a great direction, a lot of fun, and some great balloons to see. Okay, so... I'm not quite done with Mickey Hart. I just wanted to make that quick foray over because uh, in a few minutes, it'll be time to turn our attention uh, to the green stuff that we love to talk about on the show. But I got one more uh, uh, little uh, piece of music uh, for Mickey Hart and uh, in his honor today, uh, given that it is his birthday. And of course, what would the Grateful Dead be and Mickey Hart be without drums? That really is Mickey and, of course, Billy in their natural element. Um, they're great drummers. They, they're great uh, backing on all of the, the Grateful Dead tunes. But it's the rare band that commits a designated portion of each of its shows strictly to its drummers. And the Grateful Dead not only did it, they could do it because both Mickey and Billy's talents and skills and own imagination and creations come up with such wonderful sounds and in this one right we we hear them just with an initial drum beat and then it breaks into all sorts of distorted sounds the crowd clearly loves it and uh, as my good buddy mike used to say when they'd come out for drums time to just kick back and 
take it all in. And he was usually right. But if you were in the right frame of mind and it was the right night, that drums, you could find yourself uh, standing and, and being very active to that as well. And you could always spite, spot, the, spot the dosers because they were the ones dancing uh, uh, out there very much and, and, and loving the, the, the vibes that were coming from the drum solo. But it, it wasn't always that way. Uh, in the beginning of The Grateful Dead, um, while it was not uncommon for Bill and then when Mickey joined the band, both of them, uh, you know, to have some kind of drum solos, they would typically be either in the middle of a song or leading into a song such as the, the big drum play always before the other one in the early days. It wasn't until 1978 uh, that the second set of Grateful Dead shows began to feature Billy and Mickey for a nightly, a nightly rhythmic excursion that we all knew and put on our, our tapes as drums, followed by Garcia, Weir, and Lesh, and sometimes uh, Keith Gauchow, or eventually um, Brent, and eventually Vince, uh, delving into their free-form improvisation uh, that we all called space. And so that's why every show, basically from 78 on, if you're looking through the second set, about halfway, give or take through, you will always see a space-slash-drums entry, um, and usually it's right at the p- place where the tape flips. They'll, they'll get the drums in, um, the, the, the whole first part of the second set, and the drums are a good portion of the drums until the tape runs out. And as far as tapers are concerned, that's that's always the ideal place to flip a tape because, you know, the, the, the thought is if you miss, you know, 10, 15, 20 seconds out of drums or space, well, okay, but, you know, you're not missing, like, you know, the key parts of the concert or anything. And I generally agree with that. But there have definitely been some drum solos where uh, there were certain segments of it that you didn't want to miss and you were glad that you heard. But I, I certainly don't disagree with the overall notion that as compared to missing a key line out of a song, because that's when your tape ran out, um, that that, uh, that was the, the way to do it, right? You'd have these 90-minute max L's and 45 minutes on a side. And so, you know, for a 90-minute second set, give or take, that's usually what it was, half and half being flipped right at the uh, right at the drums in space. Uh, and the, the dead would screw you if they played an extra song or two heading into the drums in space, because then you had to worry as to whether that last song was going to actually be the, was going to still be in play when it was time to flip your tape. And, and I would see many a taper sitting there, you know, quietly holding their breath and saying a little prayer, hoping that the dead, you know, would kick it over to the drummers just in time before they had to flip. And you can always tell if they got their wish or not, because they'd be screaming, you know, either cool or, you know, swear words if it, if it went the other way for them. But yeah, you know, ever since I started seeing shows and the people who I knew saw, saw shows, drums in space, and it was always out there. And, you know, it, it just uh, was a great part, a natural extension of the band and the live performance they were giving you that every night these guys were coming up with something new and creative and just giving it so much energy. And I loved all the different drum arrangements they had over the years. When I first started, they had the, the circle of drums. It was literally all of their drums elevated up around them in a big circle. So during the drum solo, they could literally stand up at their kits and have all of these drums just readily available for them to just reach out. And, and, you know, if you ever saw the the Jetsons back in the day when we were kids, there's one episode with George Jetson playing the drums and he's literally you know, sitting on a seat completely surrounded by drums. And my brother and I always used to wonder, how did he get in there to play the drums? But nevertheless, uh, that's what George did. And uh, meanwhile, these guys, you know, they weren't boxing them in, but, you know, they were up there and you'd see these big, huge drums just hanging down in a circle around the drummers. And it was always quite a sight and, and fun to see. Um, 
and then uh, uh, eventually they would have uh, like a wall of drums, um, or, or which was you know they they got rid of the the drums hanging over their head and they put them all kind of right behind the drummers. And then when they were doing the drum solos, they'd get off and kind of turn their backs to the audience a little bit to play all the things they had there. Then they actually had a whole line of drums where they extended down the wall and, and, and really extended out. And then by the time Dead & Company was touring, they basically just built on the stage back there, as near as I could tell, you know, a little studio, a little separate area for Mickey to go stand in and Jay Lane or you know whoever was drumming with them at the time to go stand in to do their drums. And quite frankly, there was room. It wasn't unusual to see O'Teal go back there and, and drum with them. And uh, sometimes some of the other members of the band, um, you know, and it, it would just become almost a team project. However, they did it. It was fun. It was just it was part of the show. And, you know, you knew going in, you were going to get a drums in a space. And, uh, you know, you hoped that it would actually um, be something memorable. And uh, ever since April 6, 1978, at the Curtis Hickson Center in Tampa, Florida, right up until the very last show they ever played, drums was there. And, uh Mickey really made it happen. So uh, happy 80th birthday. Shout out to Mickey Hart. Keep going, man. It's great. All you guys are hitting the 80 mark and, and still going strong. Now, if we can just get all four of you back together to play, you know, even though we know you told us it was your last time, but that's okay. I don't think too many people will be upset if you can all find your way onto a stage again, uh, with, either with John Mayer or with Trey or whoever you guys want to want to bring in and, and, and play with you. But as long as you're all healthy, as long as you're out there playing music anyway, man, would it be uh, would it be awesome for us to be able to see you guys do your thing. But uh, Mickey Hart day to day, Mickey Hart's birthday, 80 years young, probably going out uh, uh, to the great outdoors to celebrate as only Mickey can. And we wish him a good time, a healthy year, and look forward to celebrating with him again next year. We're going to switch over in a minute here on the musical side because uh, we did have a rather major loss in the uh, music world uh, just about a week ago now, and we're going to delve into that pretty deeply. But before we do, we are going to go talk about a little marijuana. So, Dan, what do you got for us today? I've done a bit of smuggling, and I've run my share of grass. Very timely, sir. Very timely. Very nice indeed. <clears throat> yes, marijuana, the topic that all the greats can, uh, you can, if you look hard enough, you can find any of them singing a song about it. And, and how wonderful is that? So let's dive right in. And uh, most of what we got today on marijuana, quite frankly, centers on Washington, D.C., for all intents and purposes, that's where all the action is and where all the action is going to be. You know, the states that have changed have changed. The states that are going to change will change. But for everybody, and we've talked about this for a long time, we need federal action. And nowhere do we really need it more than in the idea of banking. Um, and what are all of these people supposed to do with all of this money that they're bringing in if they can't accept checks, they can't accept credit cards? For a while, they could accept debit cards until MasterCard and others came out and said no debit cards. And there's all sorts of other brand new alternatives and actually some really great and exciting ones that are coming out. And uh, I'm going to make it a point to try and touch on some of those over the next couple of weeks uh, because it's important to know what you have in terms of options uh for handling money in this industry because the feds are not making it easy for anyone. 
and um, yes, 280E and all of that. And yes, rescheduling, which we talked about last week, uh, would very likely open the door for banking and, and very likely get rid of 280E. But it's really a scam by the government because it's a, hey, look over here while they hide the fact that they're really keeping that by doing that marijuana illegal, meaning that uh, you can't get marijuana from anyone other than a licensed pharmacist, just like you can't go out and buy Xanax from a guy in a street corner, although millions of Americans apparently do, from what I hear. Um, I am not a street corner Xanax kind of guy for the record, but those are not legal sales. That's an illegal sale of drugs and anything on the schedules if, if you're selling it and you're not uh, a licensed pharmacist because two to one and two don't typically get sold on the street. They can't. They're, 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 they're uh, either criminal or require very, very special extenuating circumstances uh, to be able to be used in any kind of a medical situation. So we need to get marijuana off of the schedules. But since the government is proving to be woefully inefficient at getting that done in any kind of a timely fashion, much to the chagrin of many in the industry and much to the pleasure of many in the industry who love the fact that it's still a very highly restricted market and think that as long as it's illegal like that, they don't have to worry about fighting off the big guys from coming in. But all the rest of us are sitting here waiting to see what's going to happen and our eyes are all focused on the Senate because that is where things always get tied up. The House, in a very fine bipartisan fashion, always passes a safe banking act measure by huge margins, and then it goes off to the Senate to die. And as you know, uh, Rob, especially, and, and I, to uh, the degree that I'm uh, intellectually capable of understanding the argument as well as he is, you know, it's very, very frustrating to see politics and, and other like things like that kind of step in and take over. So here's the latest, right, um, from our good friends at uh, Marijuana Moment. Kyle Yeager, thanks as always uh, for being one of our great sources for marijuana news on this show. Um, we appreciate you guys. The Senate Banking Committee Chair aims to advance the marijuana bill within the next six weeks. A key Senate chairman, uh, committee chairman says he's spoken with Chuck Schumer, the majority leader, about moving bipartisan marijuana banking legislation, which he hopes to advance along with several other priority bills in the next six weeks. Senate Banking Committee Chairman Sherrod Brown, a Democrat from Ohio, uh, said Monday that the Secure and Fair Enforcement Safe Banking Act is one of the top bills of his fall legislative agenda. And while he didn't comment on the substance of his conversation with uh Leader Schumer, the majority leader has made clear in letters to colleagues and in floor speeches on Tuesday that cannabis banking is a priority. We want to get recoup. We want to get safe banking. We already have the Fend Off Fentanyl Act. Those are priorities, Brown said, referencing banking accountability and opioid-related enforcement legislation in addition to the marijuana measure. We want to do all of that in the next six weeks. Well, the prospects of passing the Safe Banking Act this fall, as always, are contingent on a number of factors, including the fact that moving must-pass spending legislation to fund the government is expected to take up a significant amount of the senator's times, uh, as we know coming up, because otherwise at the end of September, the government can shut down. And Marjorie Taylor Greene is running around swearing that if they don't impeach Biden, she's going to let it shut down. 
uh, to which we say, good, they'll stop paying you your money and you can go home to Georgia and do whatever it is you do back there. But I digress. There's also the matter of disagreement over one key section of the bill that prevented it from advancing during the summer session before the lawmakers broke for the August recess. Right. And here we go. Here's the politics, folks. Here's where it starts to get touchy. Some Democrats believe that Section 10 of that legislation would undermine banking regulations and are seeking to amend or remove. Republicans have said that is a non-starter. And what Section 10 basically does is it determines whether or not uh, other uh, parts of government can come in, uh, like the DEA, for instance, and say to the uh, banking legislators um, that you're not allowed to shut down uh, an account, you're not allowed to accept an account for certain reasons. And um, as the politics on this are, are, are just not okay because Republicans have said they view that option as a non-starter um, by trying to uh, uh, put that stuff in. It's unclear if any progress was made over uh, any of the recess to reach an agreement that would allow the bill to move through the Senate Banking Committee and onto the floor. So the Democrats want to get it done for marijuana purposes. The Republicans want to get it done for marijuana. But as long as it's getting done, they want to play games with it as well so that they can then uh, – uh, well, actually, I, I said that backwards. It, uh, the Republicans might accuse the Democrats of, of playing games with it because I think that what the Democrats are looking at, one of the issues that has come up is uh, whether or not down the road um, there would be an option to say to gun manufacturers, uh, well, if you don't stop manufacturing, we're just not going to let you have banking services anymore. And so I think that you know there's, there's a little give and take on that issue here. But to me, uh, ultimately, um, you know, the bigger issue is that it, it's not a bipartisan issue. And Schumer stressed that uh, on Tuesday that we're under no illusion that we can make progress on the Senate floor unless we get bipartisan cooperation on marijuana reform and other priorities, such as curbing the price of insulin and competing against China in the global economy. None of this will be easy either. The bills require a lot of work and compromise, but if we can progress on these items, we will greatly improve the lives of the average American. Great. Nicely said, Chuck. Don't pay it, it enough lip service. Let's just get it done. Everybody's been saying this is a great bill ever since it first showed up a number of years ago. Uh, we need to get it done. Uh, in the Senate, the Safe Banking Act has 42 co-sponsors, which is nearly half of the Senate, and that includes eight Republicans and three independents. As a standalone in its current form, insiders say the measure is enough Republican buy-in to reach the 60-vote threshold needed for passage in the Senate. Well, that's also good to know. But, you know, again, as we've talked about, in this instance, talk is cheap. These guys talk about this all day long. Rob, as you know, has been uh, universally suspect and pessimistic as to whether these guys can ever get their act together anytime soon. I try to be a little more hopeful and positive, even though I know that Rob is probably right. And I'm uh, just trying to, to look at it in a way that, that's, you know, defies common sense and logic, which, you know, sometimes when it comes to things you have a passion for, that can get in the way. Okay, so we'll see what the Senate does. Okay, so that that's story number one out of Washington, D.C. Let's read story number two out of Washington, D.C. Again, from Marijuana Moment, this one by Ben Adlin. And this is going to be an interesting take because in this one, we have a congressman who is interfering in a Cherokee tribe's marijuana legalization vote. And the chief of the tribe says the interference might very well help the referendum pass when his tribe votes. So the, the head of the, as reported by Ben, the head of the Eastern Band of Cherokee Indians, which is set to vote on a referendum to legalize cannabis for adults, says he believes efforts by an anti-marijuana North Carolina GOP congressman 
to insert himself into the tribe's internal affairs could ultimately cause more members to support the measure. In an interview this week with Marijuana Moment, uh, the, the principal chief of the uh, uh, Eastern Band of the Cherokees, Richard G. Sneed, said it was a big misstep for U.S. Rep. Chuck Edwards, Republican from North Carolina, to run an op-ed in the tribal news publication, Cherokee One Feather, in which the congressman spent, said legalization on the tribal land would be irresponsible, and I intend to stop it. Okay, before we go any farther, can we just talk about who these, you know, white privileged men are who want to go interfere in how people do business on Indian tribes? I intend to stop it. Thanks, Chuck. That's just what everybody wanted to hear, that you're going to step in and you're going to interfere with what they want to do. It's a way for them to make money. It's a way to hopefully help get a lot of Native Americans off of uh, uh, alcohol and perhaps other dangerous drugs that they've uh, taken and that uh, public health outreach programs have worked with them on for a number of years to try to help solve. Uh, this is an opportunity for them to make money selling something that's completely legal. And as we're going to find out in a minute, everyone in the world, even the federal government knows is safe. And this guy's going to go in there and be a tool and make a big issue out of this. Okay. It, there's just... To, to insert yourself like that and kind of take on this paternal attitude with them is so unnecessary, so improper, and so typical for this country in the way it treats uh, Native Americans. And uh, that alone would be enough to piss us off. But luckily, the Cherokee, uh, the members of the Cherokee tribe are hip to this guy too. So uh, Chief Sneed said that uh, Edwards putting the op-ed in the tribe's paper probably fuels more people to vote for it. So we'll see what happens come time for the vote, right? What this guy did was he dropped an op-ed in the tribal news's own publication to voice his opinion. And, and rightfully the chief of the, of the tribe said that this guy, you know, trying to come in and, and, you know, like white mansplained us what we should do. Yeah. People are, are going to be, you know, knee jerk against that. And they might otherwise vote for something which they might've voted against anyway. Um, Last week, Edwards followed up on his threat uh, by introducing in Congress the Stop Pot Act, which would cut 10% in federal transportation funding from all tribal governments as well as U.S. states with legal recreational marijuana. Wow. Okay. You know, once again, forget the fact that all of these the citizens of these states have voted for this. Forget the fact that every single goddamn episode we recite yet another study. And boy, get ready for the one we have next because it's a doozy. And once again, here's our good buddy, Chucky Edwards from North Carolina. He knows best. He knows everything. He's going to come in and he's going to say to states, screw you. I don't like marijuana. So if you mess around with it, we're going to stop giving you money for this. We're going to stop giving you money for that. Uh, we're going to stop helping you uh, with federal transportation funding because I don't like it. I don't think it's right. Okay. I don't know Chuck Edwards and I have no idea, but maybe he's a guy who goes home and has five or six or seven drinks a night. In fact, he probably gets together and does that with Ted Cruz. And right. How about these guys, Ted Cruz, right? The biggest fiasco that he's got out there is uh, going on TikTok and uh, totally taking a story and completely 
changing it for his own purposes and, and taking a, a general recommendation from the National Institute, National Institute of Health uh, that says that most Americans are, are probably wise to you know restrict their alcohol intake to two drinks a day. Not saying it's the law, not saying anyone has to do it, but just saying generally, you know, it might be a good idea. And what's Ted Cruz's response? You're going to tell me I'm limited to two beers a day? Well, you can kiss my ass. Right, because Ted Cruz is your typical blue-collar guy who goes out to the neighborhood bar and bellies up and, and pounds beers with the boys all night. So he takes that and he blows it out of proportion. So here's Ted Cruz. What is he doing? Besides being a total tool, he's advertising for alcohol. He's saying to the National Institute of Health, you can't tell me how much I can drink, right? But then he's going to turn around. Or the Republicans are going to turn around and say, oh, no, not marijuana. No, 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 sir. We can't have that. Absolutely not. Chucky Edwards likes to go drinking uh, with Ted Cruz, but they don't like marijuana. So uh, you know, we, we can't allow that. We can't have that. The, the hypocrisy is is really kind of overwhelming. And, you know, how asinine for, look, people can drink as much as they want to drink, but when a politician tries to make a big deal out of it and pretend like he's one of the guys with the implicit message being, we all drink a lot, two beers, we all drink way more than two beers. You know, he's also encouraging people to engage in the use of a product from which 3 million people die, alcohol-related deaths every year. Nobody dies from smoking marijuana. What is Ted Cruz doing here? What message is he sending to anybody? Not that anybody listens to his messages, but if if they did, what 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 message is he sending? Okay, so how do we know that these guys were all full of crap? Because we just had a very, very special anniversary last week. September 6th marks the 35th anniversary of the DEA's own judge calling for marijuana rescheduling as the agency now conducts its new review, right? And we, we talked about last week that the, the National Institute of Health or the Health and Human Services uh, and the DEA uh, are, are contemplating a proposition to reschedule marijuana from Schedule 1 to Schedule 3. And I just got done talking about it a second ago, um, why that's stupid. But in doing so, the DEA is pretending like, well, you know, we're finally at a point where maybe it's time to think about rescheduling. And that would all be great if that wasn't a big, huge lie by them as well. Why? Because 35 years ago, the chief administrative law judge, the top legal guy for the Drug Enforcement Administration itself declared marijuana to be, quote, one of the safest therapeutically active substances known to man, close quote, recommending rescheduling and criticizing the agency for impeding patient access 35 years ago 35 years ago this is the chief administrative law judge for the dea we don't hear about this the dea never liked that message they tucked it away uh and we're only hearing about it now because it's been 35 years and somebody's digging it back up it, it, it it's just unbelievable the games and the nonsense that they play Right, so now the, the Health and Human Services is advising the DEA to move cannabis from Schedule One to Schedule Three, following a scientific review it carried out under a directive from President Joe Biden. We knew this 35 years ago, guys. Why did we need a new study to find out what we already knew? The DEA administration law judge Francis Young made history on September 6, 1988, when he issued the ruling titled "In the Matter of Marijuana Rescheduling." The case was the culmination of years of activist-led efforts to get DEA to carry out a cannabis review, which the agency resisted even after being compelled by a federal appeals court.
The DEA finally held public hearings on the issue in 1986, 14 years after normal. The National Organization for the Reform of Marijuana Law, a great organization, and other advocates filed their scheduling petition 14 years later. And after two years, Young released a ruling that sharply criticized the DEA for keeping marijuana on Schedule 1. Quote, marijuana in its natural form is one of the safest therapeutically active substances known to man gets better. By any measure of rational analysis, marijuana can be safely used within a supervised routine of medical care. It would be unreasonable, arbitrary, and capricious for the DEA to continue to stand between those sufferers and the benefits of this substance in light of the evidence in this record. Now, I would go back and read it again, but Dan would get mad at me for wasting time. But we all know what it says. And if you don't hit rewind and go back and listen to this again, because it doesn't get any more basic than that. This is the, from the DEA chief judge himself, right? By any measure of rational analysis, think about what this man is saying. He's calling the entire federal government onto the carpet for lying to us, for being hypocrites, for being who knows what you want to call them, for being that we drink more than two beers. Way to go, Ted. Right. How can this be? How can this be? So the administrative law judge at that time, uh, Young, ultimately recommended that the administrator conclude that the marijuana plant considered as a whole has a currently accepted medical use and treatment in the United States, that there is no lack of accepted safety for use of it under medical supervision, and that it may be lawfully transferred from Schedule 1 to Schedule 2. Now, that was only going to Schedule 2 at the time. So in all truth, that wasn't such, I mean, that wasn't really solving our problem. How far he was willing to go in moving it takes back seat to the fact that th- maybe this guy says it's safe, it's safe, it's safe, it's safe, it's safe, but I'm such a tool of the government that even I can't imagine it going any lower than Schedule 2. I'm not ready to, to release it to the masses yet, even though I just got done saying that it, it's safe and that no rational person uh, would deny that it can be safely used. Um, now, he did throw in the language about supervised routine of medical care, mer- medical marijuana, and all of that, but those are, I think, well. Uh, kind of bumpers that he needed to put in there in order for any part of his message to be accepted. But, but you know, th- that's just crazy. That, that's just crazy talk, folks, that this is all happening, right? Despite the fact that the agency's own judge reached the conclusion, uh, then the DEA administrator, John Lawn, rejected it, and cannabis has remained in Schedule 1 ever since. How many people have gone to jail because marijuana was Schedule 1 during all of this time? How many? How many people are having problems now trying to launch dispensaries or cultivation centers because they can't get banking or they have to pay extra tax on 280E? All because the DEA administrator, John Lawn, for some ruling, that reason that none of us know, decided that his ideas and thoughts were better than the DEA's own researchers and what Judge Young had just said, right? So things could finally change soon, maybe with HHS now recommending a Schedule 3 designation and the DEA confirming that it is now carrying its portion of the review before making a final scheduling decision. Why are they doing another study? What's changed within the last 35 years that they think they need to go in and they need to do another study? They don't. They don't. They don't. And, and in fact, what uh, here's a great quote from Paul Armentano, the deputy director, director of Normal and a guy we like to talk about on the show all the time. Here's what Paul said. The milestone reflects the reality that advocates have been engaged in a multi-decade long struggle to compel the federal government to acknowledge the obvious. 
that cannabis possesses therapeutic benefits. It also highlights the fact that the federal government's ongoing refusal to do so has been strictly a political decision. After all, it was clear to the DEA's own administrative law judge some 35 years ago that cannabis didn't just meet the requisite standards of safety and efficacy, but that in fact, marijuana is its natural form as one of the safest therapeutically active substances known to man. And Tano said, let's be clear, Judge Young didn't call for more research. Judge Young didn't say the evidence was equivocal. Judge Young was convinced that the science and evidence available at that time made the case for cannabis to be legal available to patients nationwide. The evidence in support of that position has only grown exponentially stronger and, quite frankly, undeniable over the past three and one half decades. The DEA knew back then what we still know today, that the government has been lying to us about the effects of marijuana. So when you hear that, man, that's just time to roll up a big fatty, go out in the back porch, take some hits, and just curse the federal government for a few minutes for screwing all of us and uh, uh, really making our lives difficult. I'm swinging back to music here for a minute because I don't want to miss out on Jimmy Buffett today. Um, you know, singer-songwriter, he was the king of the parrot heads. Uh, he died supposedly peacefully, surrounded by family, friends, music, and dogs. On September 1st, he was 76 years old. He died at his home in Sag Harbor, New York, of skin cancer. His hits like Margaritaville and Cheeseburger in Paradise, which mingled country rock with bits of calypso melodies and had wry lyrics about the carefree life of boating and loafing at beachside bars, made him a cult hero on a huge scale. He sold 23 million albums in the U.S. on par with Jimi Hendrix and the Beastie Boys. He was one of pop, pop music's most successful and ambitious businessmen, building an empire on the brands of good times and island escapism that he celebrated in his songs. That included Margaritaville restaurants and resorts, footwear, drink mixes, and a 2018 Broadway jukebox musical, Escape to Mar Margaritaville. All told, this year Forbes estimated Jimmy's net worth at $1 billion. Not bad for a parrot head. So... I always look for that link between these guys and the Grateful Dead, and you know what? There always is, and we got Jimmy recognizing it himself. Dan, hit it. Saturday, no, did play Thursday and Friday. We played Saturday and Sunday afternoon, and boy, I looked at that audience. I said, I know who's been to all four shows. They showed it, but uh, so um, for all you deadheads out there and parrotheads, uh, I'm a little both here, so uh, we love to do this song and. Uh, and Jerry, wherever you are, here you go. This is the song we're That is Jimmy Buffett performing on August 2nd, 2022. 
which was Jerry's 80th birthday, at Maine Savings Amphitheater in Bangor, Maine. He performed a cover version of the, the Robert Hunter Garcia number Scarlet Begonias uh, that night for Jerry. Following a, a hefty rain delay, his 28-song set ensued as Buffett reminisced on the times he and his band spent performing with the Grateful Dead years ago. Uh, he also offered a shout-out to the Deadheads in the crowd before a groovy light display and hypnotic imagery engulfed the stage. Prior to the start of the song, Buffett addressed the crowd. He stated, Jerry, wherever you are, here you go. And, of course, there was a strong crossover between Deadheads and Parrotheads. Both are highly devoted fans who travel to see their band dress for the occasion, attend shows in a slightly altered state, often from different types of substances. They know all the words to all the songs and have seen their band too many times to count. Jimmy uh, also appeared on the Worldwide Ripple video uh, that came out in 2020 during the pandemic. And so, yeah, he, he the, the bands did travel together. And that's why he's telling the story about, you know, the dead would play their shows. They'd come out in the afternoons, Jimmy Buffett to play. And, you know, he could just tell by looking at the crowd, which of those folks had been at all four of the dead shows. And uh, of course, the crowd appreciated that as well. I cannot find any instances of the dead covering a, a Jimmy Buffett tune, but you know, the, the internet's such a wide place. Uh, maybe there's one out there and uh, we just haven't come across it yet, but we'll, we'll keep our eyes open for it. Um, before we, we spin off for the day into our final Jimmy tune, um, I would also just like to give a, a, a quick rest in peace shout out to Steve Harwell. Steve was the vocalist for the band Smash Mouth, which sang, and he sang the band's big 1999 hit, all-Star, which uh, my kids loved and I heard over and over and over again. And uh, you can still hear often on the radio. Uh, it is still a hit today. today. He had a very unique voice. He died on September 4th at age 56. And that is another big loss for the music industry. And our condolences to Harwell's friends and family. On the way out the door today, uh, there's really only one song I thought that we could end this with, uh, and I'll give a shout out to my wife too, because when we heard this news the other day on the radio, she was the one who immediately suggested that you can't have a show uh, without featuring Jimmy Buffett, and as soon as I did five minutes of research, I realized she was right, the, but but everyone knows that this song is coming, right? You, you, you go to see the Rolling Stones, you're going to get Jumpin' Jack Flash, uh, you got to go to the Who, you're going to get Baba O'Reilly. Um, you know, you can go right down the list because some bands have songs that just define the band more than others. And Margaritaville is certainly one of them. While Jimmy made his home and name in Key West, Florida, uh, after struggling to make it big in Nashville, the Lone Star State had a special place in Buffett's history. Legend has it he came up with the concept for the 1977 song Margaritaville at a small bar in Austin during a morning drinking session. Uh, the slightly mournful tune about a day at the beach went on to define Buffett's career as a laid-back beach bum, where the guitar has been covered plenty of times, as well as inspired, as we said, mar margarita mix, frozen snacks, apparel, chain of restaurants and resorts, and, and all sorts of good stuff like that. Uh, according to multiple stories, uh, in the Austin Statement, Austin American Statesman archives, the original Margaritaville was a Mexican restaurant on Anderson Lane in Austin. Others specifically claim it was... Lungs Cochina del Sur at 2700 West Anderson Lane, which is now a bowling alley. But here's what Buffett himself had to say uh, about the memorial for a close friend, Jerry Jeff Walker in Texas Monthly, reminiscing on visits to Texas in the 1970s. I came to Austin a lot in those days. I made it there by getting these college bookings and getting on Willie's second 4th of July picnic. I played Castle Creek many times. I think it was after one of those shows the next morning, I had a hangover and I had to fly home that afternoon. 
I went to El Rey, a Mexican restaurant in Anderson Lane, on Anderson Lane for lunch. I had a margarita, which helped me with the hangover. And in the car on the way to the airport, the chorus of a new song started coming to me. I wrote a little more on the plane and finished the rest of Margaritaville back in Key West. Well, Jimmy, farewell to you. You're off to Margaritaville for good. And uh, we will certainly miss you in the musical world. So uh, we, we miss we miss him. Uh, happy birthday to Mickey one last time. Special shout out to him. 80 is a, is a big age. And thank God you're here and you made it, man. We love you and all the things you do for the dead. Uh, that's it for this week, folks. Join us again next week. We'll have more great uh, stuff on the Grateful Dead, on marijuana, and hopefully the federal government uh, getting off of its ass. In the meantime, have a great week. Stay safe and enjoy your cannabis responsibly. Thanks, everyone. listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. 99.9% of our DNA is identical. It's a 0.1% that truly makes us different and unique. And that's what the show is about. Find out that 0.1% about your favorite guests. Find out what music they like their first cannabis experience, and even what their room looked like growing up. But more importantly, or as important, their journey. Learn what makes them unique on Everything is Personal.